0: Hello and welcome to our Wednesday evening broadcast. We're here to answer questions about the Buddha's teaching, particularly about meditation practice in our tradition particularly questions that are practical in nature and require an answer in order to facilitate and support the practice. So we're not here to talk theory or philosophy, culture, anything like that. We're not here to talk about me We're not here to talk about the Buddha We're here to talk about you and your practice So if you have questions, feel free to post them in the chat Please don't use the chat to chat, it's not for chatting If you don't have questions, you're welcome anyway, just close your eyes and sit with me. Shraddha is already preparing a list of questions. Shraddha has joined me. Thank her for coming, but I want to also say, because now I have a chance to thank her on a regular basis, that she's not the only volunteer that makes this stuff happen. There's a lot of people involved just to give me a place to stay and to do this work. There's a lot of support, and we got a whole organization, a board of directors, and a volunteer crew that are doing great work. And I just want to appreciate all of them. Thank you all for making this happen. You're a part of this. This isn't me. We've turned off the video because it's not about a person. It's about a practice. And we are all involved with this. So thank you all for the work that you do and the confidence and support that you give to me and to our organization. Thank you to all of you who come and watch these broadcast, for your interest, just being interested in good things like meditation and peace, freedom, this is inspiring, that there is still this in the world, people interested in good things. So I'm ready to answer questions whenever you're ready Shraddha.
1: In walking meditation some thoughts appear but don't become object of contemplation. They disappear and I continue noting stepping right, stepping left. Any guidance?
0: You can just ignore them stray thoughts in walking meditation. In sitting, you're better to just stop what you're doing and note them, but in walking, you can just bring the mind back to the foot. Otherwise, you would be stopping a lot. It's not great practice to walk and note something else at the same time. But on the other hand, if you stop, it wouldn't make any sense either, so you can just ignore it. It's really as long as you're noting something, it's you're, you're doing the work. So if you're noting the foot moving, that's good enough. It's just if you'd start to ignore something that's persistent and distracting, then you should stop walking and note that. Of course you can stop and note everything. Stop and note thinking just to remind yourself that you were thinking. It's maybe not the most productive thing to do, especially in the beginning.
1: Instead of focusing on the stomach rising and falling, could I watch the chest rise and fall instead?
0: Yeah, that's more a product of, uh, of of stress and tension, and it's very common for new meditators to feel like it's happening in the chest. But what I'm getting at is that eventually you'll find that it drops if you continue and and engage in in meditation sincerely, you'll find that your body relaxes and the breath drops down to the stomach. It's recommended because of that, or just generally because that's where the relaxed state of breath happens. It's recommended you start at the stomach, even if it's difficult in the beginning. Anything about it being difficult is, is always inevitably a product of the nature of reality. It's not under your control and it's not predictable. You can try putting your hands on your stomach in the beginning if that helps, but ultimately you just have to be patient with it because it's not going to be predictable or stable or satisfying. It's going to disturb you until you're no longer disturbed by such things.
1: there any specific ways i can meditate to help get get over gifts from previous mistakes
0: so first of all don't try to get over it try and see it clearly and just always have that frame of mind where you're trying to see things clearly you're not trying to get over anything because it doesn't work that way and it won't work that way it'll only generally make it worse as you try to be free from things just try to see them clearly and and have no no next step after that. You know, there's nothing. And then what? There is no and then what. Your fo- your your practice should always be trying to see things clearly. Do that with the guilt. Let I me mean, use the booklet. The sort of general practices given in the booklet.
1: should one make anger completely disappear and become enlightened one?
0: So again probably the same advice I mean as a philosophical question there's maybe another answer but practically speaking and that's what we're focused on here you don't try and make anything go away you try and understand and see things clearly try and understand the anger don't worry about becoming an enlightened one that's just theory Once you see things clearly, that's enlightenment. I
1: have an arthritic hip. What is the next best position to meditate in instead of sitting?
0: So I challenge you to maybe try and sit even with the arthritic hip, but when when and if it's just not possible you can of course sit on a chair or kneel or you know, any position that is convenient it's just that you don't want to just you don't want to worry too much about pain arthritis doesn't kill you i don't think it just is painful and that's not really a problem you probably find that if you persist it, it, it gets better in some ways at the very least you stop being upset about pain and that's a good result don't be afraid of pain it can teach you a lot But yes, meditation, the position isn't nearly as important as the state of mind. So don't be too concerned about having to sit in this position or that position.
1: The next question is not about meditation, but it's related to the precepts. a practical situation someone works hard to cook on you for you then asks did you like it and you didn't like it at all is it ungrateful to say this in the name of telling the truth how to behave
0: yeah you don't want to lie and yet often you get in these situations where it seems like a lie is the nicest thing to do but it kind of underlines why lying is so bad, because you you delude the person into thinking something that's not true about themselves, about their think, their work, and so on. And and I think it would be wrong to just coldly tell them the truth. And on the other hand, you're, it's absolutely wrong to lie to them and to de- deceive them into thinking that thinking something that's not true. And people tend to appreciate people who tell the truth, and if they don't appreciate you telling the truth and uh, maybe there's a problem with them and something that you want to avoid. But I mean, I, I'm just talking practically. I don't, I, I don't want to give any answer as canonical because, again, this is a situation that comes down to to wisdom. I can't give you the answers to your life. You have to cultivate wisdom so you can do the right thing. But uh, giving guidance, I think, can help at least direct you in the right way and. The problem is sometimes that when you hear about the precepts it seems like white and black. Uh, black and white. Like either you you absolutely tell them the cold truth or else you absolutely lie to them and there's a very, very large gray area that, that is on the proper side of the line. Like it isn't lying. It could be deceptive, but it's not lying. And that, that's that's an important point that people often miss because even though you're deceiving someone, you're not Perverting reality, you're not crossing the line where you are you are categorically uh going against reality, so you so so it's not wrong always it's not it's not necessarily wrong to deceive someone, and we know this because we have examples of where the Buddha i mean we have stories anyway of where the Buddha where his disciples deceived people, you know misled them, said things that were maybe misleading. Because they knew that it would be sort of this gray area where you, you don't um, say something to, to uh, cause a reaction in them. That's what you're understanding, is that if you tell them the truth, it's going to be very painful and unpleasant and probably problematic for your friendship. But there's lots of ways you can be skillful. Like in this example, you, you don't have to be deceptive per se. You can, twi- you can change the conversation you know the best way to deceive someone is in a way that they they understand what you mean and they also understand that you're being you're you're, you're not saying what you could have said but they understand that it's not quite uh, the way they thought it was so one example i mean it, i'm being purposely vague but there's many many aspects here like the fact that the one that comes immediately to mind is the fact that liking it isn't the most important thing you know that's a very important buddhist concept and you, you so you can point out how healthy it was you can point out how grateful you are that they made the food for you you know there are ways to shift the conversation without having to deceive or in a way that is still kind of deceptive because it leaves open the the implication that you were pleased by the meal and perhaps you were displeased by it. But ultimately, your pleasure or displeasure doesn't matter, so redirecting the conversation that way can be quite skillful. I don't know if it works in this case, but often you don't say anything and just smile. That's often in many cases, probably, perhaps not this one. A smile is, is the best answer. It avoids the. It avoids a problematic question that they shouldn't have asked in the first place. No one should ever ask anyone, did you like something? It's just not, and from a Buddhist perspective, it's not an important question. It's not a useful one, it's not beneficial, it's based on a misunderstanding of what's important and so on. So it's not really worth an answer, honestly, which is why redirecting it is probably generally the most skillful way. You know, like here's an example, and but here's an example of how you would mislead them without telling a falsehood, and in fact, telling something that's very true. You could say it was a wonderful meal. I appreciated it very much, or no, I I liked it very much. And and what you mean by that, even though it sounds it sounds like a lie, right? But what you mean by that is you appreciate. You know, it was a great meal because it was because they cooked it for you. They worked hard, and that's a wonderful thing, unless you paid for it but if they did it out of the kindness of their heart, it was a wonderful meal. And you liked that about it very much, or you liked it very much in that sense. Maybe I liked it very much is technically untrue, because perhaps you forgot all that, and you were, you were ungrateful, and instead of focusing on what was important about the meal, you focused on how much you hated it. In which case the bad is on you, and you have to get better and not focus so much on liking it and focus more on the greatness of the meal and how wonderful the meal it was simply because they made it with great care and kindness.
1: When you tell us to just close our eyes and focus on your voice, I end up calling it is the
0: That's not a question. You're putting a question into their mouth. I guess that is the question, huh? Yeah, I don't know if I'd say to focus on my voice. That's not perhaps what's... It's not quite what I would recommend. Take the voice as an object of meditation, say hearing, hearing. I mean, if you fall asleep in meditation, there's one of two things. One, you're meditating in such a way as to put you to sleep, or two, you just have uh, an imbalance in the mind. And and by imbalance, I simply mean that you've probably been working quite hard during the day, or you've been focusing quite hard, or... Your state of mind is one that is inclined towards that focus. I mean, it's not like you're imbalanced. It's just, practically speaking, we imbalance our mind constantly, day in and day out. And so that's why we feel tired in the evening. That's um, why we feel stressed sometimes. We, we, we tip one way or the other. So it's quite common in the beginning for meditators to tip to be very tipsy, going back and forth between restlessness and drowsiness. But that'll work itself out if you, med- if you persist in meditation.
1: I have tinnitus, a ringing noise, and I get constantly distracted from the other senses by the sharp sounds of it. I'm afraid that it will be a problem in cultivating concentration. Any thoughts?
0: Well, if it's the most prominent, take it as the object. Hearing, hearing. I know tinnitus can be quite challenging. Especially we over time, people who have it have developed often quite an aversion to it or specific defense mechanisms surrounding it. So you have to unpack all of that slowly. But just unpack it by being mindful, by observing all of it. When you're afraid, not afraid, worried perhaps. Now as far as cultivating concentration, you may be misled into thinking that there's some deep concentration that's necessary. But when you're seeing something clearly, that's the concentration we're trying for. You don't have to worry beyond that for some sort of concentration.
1: I'm skipping a question to ask the next one because it's maybe related to what you just said. How can I train myself to stay concentrated longer on the feeling of the breath? I often get up with thoughts, then say, thinking, thinking, but it interrupts my concentration even though I'm mindful.
0: Yeah, again, it's probably not the type of concentration that we're looking for. Concentration we're looking for is momentary. It has to be momentary because experiences are momentary. They arise and cease. And so you want to be focused on every single moment. That means being adaptable, being flexible, it means being mindful. We don't try and train ourselves to stay concentrated on the breath or anything.
1: the next question is not about meditation but it may help the person asking i lost my fiance in a traffic accident and i can't get over the pain she meant everything to me i've tried meditating but i can't get over the feeling that i'm turning a blind eye to the truth i guess the question is any advice
0: I don't understand turning a blind eye to the truth. Can't well, if you, I mean, I don't understand that. But whatever you're feeling, is just a feeling. You would say feeling, feeling. I mean, it's more of a thinking or a worrying or that sort of thing. Pain and sadness. You're not the first person. You're not the last person. This isn't the first time. This isn't the last time that you will f- cry and. Mourn the loss of a loved one. The tears that you have shed are greater than the oceans, greater than the waters in all the oceans. Birth after birth, even if you don't believe in rebirth, person after person, every, for for how many generations, how many bones. If you were to pile them all up, how many bones would there be of people who we have lost, people who have been lost to other people? If you were to collect all the tears of all the people who have cried for a lost loved one, if you were to, were to collect the sound of all the people crying, there's nothing strange about what you're experiencing, nothing unexpected. Buddha, the Buddha would be a little bit uh, hard in this, what's the word, a little bit, I don't know what the word is, a little bit cold, I suppose, in this, where he said to Patachara, he said, why are you still unmindful? Put it back on her, which is kind of cruel in a way it seems uncomp Uncompassionate, but it is ultimately—if I mean—I'm—I'm I'm trying to couch it uh, pleasantly or compassionately, so that it's not harsh. But it is the truth that ultimately, there's no reason to cry. I was I was I was reminded of the fact, when I said that to someone once, I was reminded by them of the fact that it may be true that it's not, there's no reason to cry. And and I still think that that's valid advice. It's also important to understand that it's not good to think there's something wrong with crying. And that's very important in your case as well. So, write right in what you say, I can't get over the pain. And again, going back to what I said, It's not about getting over the pain. It's about seeing the pain clearly. It's not about getting over anything. Try and see the pain, pain clearly. Sadness. So I think there's something to theoretically reminding yourself or conceptually reminding yourself that it's not that unexpected. It's just part of life. But ultimately, just observing. So powerful, you know you 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 change everything about the way you look at the world and people and things everything is chaotic anyway, it's unpredictable. It's just the nature of life. I mean one thing that often I think could be mollifying is that you don't lose people. He or she is still around somewhere. Maybe not a he or a she anymore, but somewhere. You never had them in the first place. It's just uh, not seeing them at the moment. They didn't go anywhere. We're all still here. All the people we've lost are still here. In the, in the same way they always were. I mean, in, from in, technically they were never there in the first place, right? Because there's only experiences, but also in some sense they're still here being reborn again and again most likely we'll see them again but but even still they're just people and we're going to meet more people some we might have the same feelings for we've met many people who we've had the same feelings for meaning you haven't lost anyone because we're all still here humanity is still here we kind of make a mistake i mean we we make big mistakes but but one mistake is in selecting a specific person there's no need for that but we hold on to them because we think that they in particular particular will make us happy there's nothing really wrong with with being friendly with specific people i think that's a really good thing to to choose your friends and your companions wisely pick good people who do encourage you and and bring happiness and peace but but they come and go. That's just the nature of things and just because they one is gone doesn't mean more will come. Don't get don't cling, right? That's the point. Just because you have happiness with your friend in your companionship with people doesn't mean you should cling to that person. Because they do go, they come and go. It's it's unpredictable, and it's not the way we always think it would be. Ultimately, for your own happiness, for your own peace of mind. I think the the first step is just to try and understand the pain and the grief, the grieving. Clearly, don't try and get rid of it. But in the long term, it helps you to gain a better perspective on things. I mean, ultimately, it is a better perspective to be open, to understand that we're all in this together. That person is still here, still in this with you. They haven't gone anywhere. You haven't lost them.
1: it normal that when i try to meditate my mind feels very tired and like i can't concentrate or feel peace
0: whether something's normal isn't really important what's important is that you're experiencing it and if you're experiencing it try to see it clearly don't worry about things being abnormal or problematic or so on there's no problems there's only experience just try and see it as it is So you would say to yourself tired, tired. You can also switch. I mean practically speaking it's sometimes useful to switch postures instead of sitting do walking. That can help with fatigue.
1: I take the next few questions are people seeking advice. I'm a professional athlete. Meditation is really helping me to ease my mind and focus. On the other hand, it makes me a less competitive person. How do I use meditation to become better?
0: It's a good question, I suppose. it's a good question it's um I mean I think in response, I could ask. What do you mean by become better? But really it depends what you mean. It depends on what you mean by become better. And for what reason do you think being a more competitive person would be better? I mean I know of course the answer is you're a professional athlete and you need to be competitive. That's better. Fortunately your mind is starting to disagree with you. And you can't avoid that. Being being competitive and being enlightened are are perpendicular paths. They don't lead in the same direction. So you're going to find them diverging. You know, ultimately, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You either eat the cake or you keep it. It's an odd. I mean, it's. It's a very well-used analogy, and it seems odd to say in this case, but the idea is sound. If you want to be happy, you can't have all the pretty things that you think make you happy. Because the secret is they don't make you happy. Having your cake doesn't actually make you happy. Eating it. Well, if the cake is enlightenment, then eating it makes you happy.
1: I have a habit of chewing on my lips. And is noting a way to help deal with
0: it. Yeah, I mean in the beginning it's going to probably involve freeing yourself from your aversion to the habit. You have to recognize that's always, always going to be on top there. Because implicit in what you're saying is I have a bad habit of chewing my lips. And implicit is most likely that you don't like the habit. And you have to see that clearly, I mean you have to really see it all clearly but don't ignore that part of it and what that means again what I've been saying several times already, it means stop trying to get make things go away start trying to see them clearly just try to understand, don't try to overcome or free yourself from things don't try to deal with things, I mean it's a good way of phrasing it because that's exactly what it is it's dealing with it, but implicit in that is often deal with it satisfactorily so it's no longer a problem or so it no longer is there but you really, yeah, dealing with it so it's no longer a problem really means not having any problem with it you know? Um, But one more thing is that there will be an underlying reason why you chew your lips, it's not ordinary behavior it's not uh, instinctual I don't think, not usually Um, and so most likely you're going to find some underlying issues that, once you work, once you see them clearly, it will stop such nervous behaviors. General anxiety causes that sort of thing. But don't go don't go looking. You know, take whatever's there, and most especially your disliking and your desire for the habit to go away, that sort of thing, and also the habit itself, of course. Let's try and see that clearly. The Buddha called it untying untying the knot, untangling the tangle you can think of us as all tangled up and that's why we act in what one might call perverse ways like chewing on your lip you can say in this sense is perverse not in the way anyone ordinarily would say it, but technically we can say it's perverse it may not even look like it's perverse but if you look closely at your experiences at your mind states you'll see there's a a tangle, your mind is tangled up It's crooked. It's all mixed up. And biting your lip is most likely a part of that. It's not a judgment to say it's bad or anything. It's just that's what you'll start to see. And so all I'm trying to do is describe why and how mindfulness works. So is noting a way to deal with it? Yes, because seeing clearly untangles the tangles. Untangles the tangles in the mind. More straightforward. It's it's a way of creating straightness, rectitude in the mind, seeing things just as they are, and that's the opposite of being tangled up and crooked and twisted. And so, so strange habits will just weaken and and ultimately go away.
1: can I stop feelings of remorse?
0: So the same answer, I've already answered this basically. We're not trying to stop feelings, we're trying to understand them. If you want them to stop, you have to say wanting, or if you dislike them, say disliking. And then just note the feelings themselves.
1: I sure, Not this question, but I'm ask how to deal with a person who loves you, but you can't give that feeling back.
0: Well, I don't think ultimately it's your problem to deal with, and that's harsh and cold and hard to to accept, but we have to ultimately acknowledge that there are going to be many of these sorts of problems, not just this one where it's someone else's problem. We often uh, overlook that fact. If someone's angry at you, it's actually not your problem. (laughs) The Buddha said this when someone came and yelled at the Buddha, scolded him because his wife was a follower of the Buddha. and His wife, what happened was um, he had these naked ascetics over for breakfast and his wife was helping to serve them, but she was a Buddhist and she would always recite to herself, Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato And apparently, as she was bringing out some food, she tripped on a carpet or something. And as she was falling, she said to herself, Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato I, I think it's, it's hard to imagine that she said all of that as she was falling, but that's apparently what the text says. And the ascetics were were incensed, very angry, because they didn't want to hear her praising the Buddha. And they all got up and left. And her husband came and said, What's wrong? What happened? Why'd they go? And she told him and he got very angry. And he went straight to see the Buddha and started abusing him. And the Buddha looked at him and said, Brahmin, if someone comes to you with a gift, and you don't accept it, the gift who who whose who does the gift belong whom to whom does the gift belong and the brahmin said well it still belongs to that person of course and the buddha said rightly so in the same way you bring me this anger and i'm not angry because i'm not angry the anger still belongs to you brahmin So the the attachment um, belongs to that person. One way to deal with it that I find is very helpful is to love them, in a, in a in in a proper way. To be friendly towards them, maybe love. I, I'm still not convinced that love is the right word for Buddhists to use, but it's such an ambiguous word that it's hard to be sure. Friendliness, friendliness is underappreciated. I think we don't recognize usually the full power of being a friend. I mean, it sounds so limited, and it's often what we say, can't we just be friends? And, oh, that's such a horrible thing to hear, right? But you don't, of course, have to say that. Friendliness is often indistinguishable from love because it's a big part of love. When two people are romantically in love with each other, a big part of that is friendship, friendliness. I mean, we just don't have a really good word for it beyond friendliness or love. But understanding it as just a very, very intense friendliness, is probably a good way to understand that aspect of love that is still pure. And you can have that towards this person, of course. You should have this towards it, that person. So just be intensely friendly. I don't know. It's maybe misleading as well, but um, no, no. But there, it, there is a difference, and it can be felt. If you are friend, because if you're friendly but not lustful, if you don't have desire towards that person, but you're still very friendly, it it is often possible to cultivate a better relationship. I mean, I suppose it's much easier as a monk because people don't expect it to, of me. But I've been in a situation like that, not in a long time, but I was before, where students would uh, would. It sort of what's the word? Uh, you know, kind of in in. Put themselves on me, you know, with, with that sort of intention. It was it was fairly clear what their in that there was interest there. And be and you know different ways of dealing with it, but the most useful is to be friendly. I found. If you're friendly and just. Have no aversion to their lust, you know, you don't you don't recoil from it, which causes a negative reaction. You just let it roll over you and don't don't interact with it. It's the same the Buddha do with the anger. You have this lust towards me, oh well that's yours. I have this friendliness for you. Whether it be lust or anger or anything, arrogance, conceit, if you have friendliness in response, it doesn't always work it can often be a good way to salvage a friendship at the very least it works for you because you always have to ask yourself what's most important what's maybe not what's most important what's most practical what is going to lead to a good outcome and it may be that you cannot save the person who is lusting I mean, there are stories as well in the scriptures of of uh, bhikkhunis, more than one who were raped by men or, or even a novice once. Uh they couldn't stop it but what's the what's the solution? what's the solution? is it to hate that person? Is it to try and destroy them? I mean, they've already destroyed themselves, really. There's really no salvation, I think, for someone who's done such a horrible thing. But how do you salvage some happiness from the situation? Like any situation, you let it go. I think perhaps... I mean, it's it's, it's very, very difficult. I, I understand the difficulty, but... I've had students who have had this happen to them. I've probably had many that I don't even know it happened to them because they never told me. Um, but through the practice of meditation, they, they have let go. They have changed the way they look at things and gained the strength that is necessary to live through and to overcome such horrible, horrible circumstances. Anyway, that turned dark. That wasn't really what you're talking about. My point being, sometimes when someone loves you, there's nothing you can do about it, and it can lead to horrible situations of stalking and even rape, for example. But the answer remains the same. You try to salvage whatever you can, and the best way to salvage, to to stay free from suffering, is always going to be about how you, in, how you react to things, your purity of mind.
1: but I'm not sure about this question I know thinking, but the noting becomes thinking here's the question for any advice
0: yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good point because noting is, in a sense, a thinking but that's, I mean, the, the, it's not a problem it's just more of a, an interesting technicality we're not trying to note everything we're trying to note something. The noting, the use of the mantra, the reminding of yourself, however you want to call it, is a tool to evoke certain states of mind. So, of course, you don't have to note everything. You'd only note thinking when it's something besides with your, your activity. Besides the noting, you would note if you're thinking about the past or future, good thoughts, bad thoughts, that sort of thing.
1: I'm going back to some of the questions that were skipped before. If reality sure. is not made up of people, but of sensations and thoughts in our mind, how is it possible that while we talk to someone like you, we receive an input of information, where do they come from?
0: Now, Information is complicated. It's not really... Again, this isn't really an important question. I mean, you have to ask yourself whether an answer to this question is really going to help you in your meditation practice if why questions if this is true, then why this we're not we're not really interested in in answering those sorts of questions. We're more interested in in determining whether something is true, right. And I think the habit might be that we often think you have to answer these sorts of questions. Ah, if if this is true, then why this? And therefore, it can't be true because that isn't true. And that's not really useful. It's useful, I mean, it's practically useful for science and those sorts of things. It's just not practically useful for psychologically attaining the truth. And by that I mean really knowing something for yourself. There are very few things we can actually know for ourselves and that's the answer to your question really or the, or the underlying question of whether reality is made up of people not made up of people but sensations and etc is because that's all we can know for sure and it's not that's not a problem that's actually a important fact that there are certain things that are in, categorically different from other things in that they are of the sort that we can understand, that we can know for sure. What are the things we can know for sure? We can know seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. We can know that it is what it is. We can't know what we are seeing. And and that's more important than we might think. I mean, we've been schooled to believe that things that we can't know for sure are are equally real, or even more real perhaps, than the things that we can know for sure. We don't phrase it like that, but we phrase it in terms of our experiences. Things that we don't experience are more real in some way than things we do experience, and that's not true. I mean, that's not a useful perspective. It's useful for the purpose of building things and creating technology and so on it's useful practically just for interacting with other people we all we all have to engage in that sort of conception of people and places and things but it's not useful psychologically for freeing yourself from suffering for understanding the truth of reality because those things that we think of as being real are not actually real they're 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 not real in a very important way and that important way is as things we can know as things we can verify You can't verify a person. It's not the sort of thing that is subject to verifiability. You can only speculate and philosophize about a person. What you can know for sure is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. And by extension, you can know impermanent suffering and non-self. That's really all you have to know. Besides the, the result of knowing, which is freedom from suffering. You should also know that.
1: Is meditation the only way to detach and attain
0: enlightenment? Hmm. I mean, yes, but it's not. I'm, I'm concerned that the the concepts in that question in this question are uh, too nebulous and well, too conceptual, for lack of a better word. So specifically you have to see clearly in order to become enlightened because in some sense that's what enlightenment is seeing clearly and so the process of seeing clearly or the process that leads us to see clearly is something we call meditation there's no way to see clearly beyond the process that leads you to see clearly ergo one must practice meditation to become enlightened detach is a word We might want to shy away from. It's maybe technically true, but it's not a very good... It's not bad, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe it's an okay word. Detach. It's just not the practice. The point being that we are attached to things. And detachment, meaning freedom or or, or, lack of attachment, comes from seeing clearly. It's just that when we use the word in English, we usually mean to forcefully keep ourselves at a distance from things, and that's not at all how it is. It's just not be attached to. We detached doesn't always mean in English to not attach. It often means to to detach, to to remove yourself from something, which is to to stay away from something, or to to be distant from something. And you don't have to be distant to be unattached.
1: we don't have any more meditation or those kind of related questions so I'll ask these and you could decide sure if a snake dies can the snake be a human in the next life I think someone was asking about their pet snake
0: Hmm. Hmm. yes absolutely there's no reason to think they couldn't snakes don't exist humans don't exist the mind continues on and it's a strange quality of reality that we are born in certain archetypes, maybe is the word, that we call humans or snakes. We're based very much on the. based on a lot of things that are out of our control. We only have influence on the direction our mind goes, where we pull, what we're pulled towards. But when you're pulled towards. This thing we call birth as a snake, there are a lot of other factors that conspire to, like DNA for example, that conspire to trap you in the body of a snake or the body of a human.
1: the difference between Buddhism and spirituality?
0: I think I'll pass. I guess I would say that neither of those words are very important. Seeing clearly is most important. What the Buddha taught is most important. Maybe that's not quite satisfactory. But I think I'm going to pass on answering it. I'm not really interested in how Buddhism relates to other things.
1: I'm not sure about this either. Could you speak about taking longer paths to enlightenment, like how Sariputta did so by being mindful of the jhana factors and took a longer time? Does this lead to more wisdom? What's the point?
0: No, I don't think Sariputta intentionally took longer. Some people do intentionally take longer, but I don't think that was the case there. It's just it took him longer because his 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 depth of mind was greater than Moggallana. It just took him. It didn't take him that long. It took him two weeks instead of one week. But it was more because of the depth of this question is actually answered, I think, by in the Melinda Panha, if I remember correctly, where he says basically that that uh, the depth of his wisdom was greater, and so it took longer just took him longer. People who think a lot, no, that's not fair to say. There was a greatness of about Sariputta that, that nobody else had, and so it took longer. Just like there was a greatness of the Buddha, how long it took the Buddha to become Buddha, or the Bodhisattva to become Buddha, a lot longer than anybody else, because of the greatness of it.
1: the mind supposed to be fixed into a particular object during the whole time?
0: I think this person should read the booklet.
1: Yeah, I mentioned that in the
0: I was just reading, I just read the first chapter of the booklet aloud, trying to make an audio version. I'm going to have to redo it. I learned that certain things interfere with other things and the sound of something came I, f- I think I found out what the buzzing noise was for this remember you said there was a buzzing noise for this session I think I figured out what the problem was too late though, I had already recorded the entire chapter and now it's useless, I have to throw it out but um, my point was, I read this chapter and I think it has to be edited again or it could use another edit Maybe I'll get around to that. So I mean, the booklet isn't perfect, and I don't expect you to th- th- to find it perfect. But I think it does a passable job of providing the information necessary. So I'd still recommend it. Is that it? Are we done? We have, I see more more questions coming in.
1: Yeah, some new questions.
0: All right, well, we have three minutes. Let's pick one or two that are important to people.
1: Note thinking when we just realized that we were thinking.
0: Yes, that's fine. You're just trying to remind yourself. You could also note knowing, like you realized it. Realizing, knowing, knowing is maybe is usually better than realizing, but it means the same thing. Just say knowing, knowing that you were thinking. You can also say thinking, that's fine. You're just trying to remind yourself it is what it is. It helps put the mind in a state of objectivity. That's all. It's the only reason. Objectivity, focus, clarity, that sort of thing. There's no magic to it. These aren't magic words. Like It's not abracadabra or something. It's just reminding you.
1: How do we stop panic attacks and suicidal
0: thoughts? Again, don't try and stop them. Just because you think something doesn't mean you have to do anything about it. And that's the real first step. Don't try and stop suicidal thoughts for sure. Panic, also don't try and stop it because trying to stop it panics you, makes you anxious. Panic attacks don't just come from nowhere. They can come quite quickly, but there is a process. It just becomes so habitual that it can it can be quite quick. But the process is being more and more anxious and then being anxious about your anxiety. And so trying to stop it doesn't work, doesn't help. You can divert your attention sometimes through tricks you know, to stop you from having a panic attack, but that's not the way. Ultimately, deal with your anxiety. You've come to understand it, come to see it clearly. Lose all idea, all concept that you might someday be free from it, try to be free from it, try to get rid of it. And instead, just try and see it clearly. Because once you see things clearly, they have no power over you. And anxiety is, is completely dependent on its power over you. Once it has no power over you, it ceases to exist. It just can't survive. It's like you're depriving it of nourishment, starving it has no capacity to continue.
1: I this one more question. I'm not sure if you'd like to answer this. How can one deal with family members or just people in general that are conniving and threatening? It seems to affect my practice since I'm always on edge and tense waiting for manipulation's effects
0: well two things I guess practically speaking try and stay away from such people but family members often you can't much much more important is to just try and meditate on being on edge and tense and worry and so on that is your practice it doesn't affect your practice that is your practice I mean, that is the object of your practice. That is what you should focus on. Try and see it clearly. That's all then. That's it for tonight. Thank you all for coming. I wish you all peace, happiness and freedom. Sad hope.